We come once again to the words of Moses found in Genesis. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Here at the very end of Genesis 22, we see that it was divine grace that sustained Abraham's faith in the midst of trial. And it was God's grace that by this same grace that we discover that by listening to God's word, the very word Abraham heard saying, look to the ram, that we too find grace in time for our trials. And that is why we're here this morning, to hear the word of God preached, so that our faith may be built up and strengthened, so that we can come to these tests, just as Abraham did, and find our faith is strengthened. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 7. Esther, chapter 7, as well, locate in your bulletin the outline and uh, use that to follow along and the like. Esther 7 is the text that we're currently on, and it'll be the text that we uh, begin um, and continue a theme through uh, through the end of this book. And that is the end of God's providence. And so today we're looking at the end of God's providence as it relates to the wicked. And uh, as you'll see that as we, as we study along. So with um, your Bibles open, let me invite you to stand together with me at the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of our King. Now the King, I'm sorry, I'm going to start in verse 9. Um, then Harbona one of the eunuchs who were before the king said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering here this very moment, this high moment in our lives where we have been called by you to come and fellowship as a corporate body in this service of worship with you around this portion of your word. Lord, we know this message is for us. Bless this time, we pray. Encourage us. Encourage the, 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 uh, the faint heart. Um, humble the proud and mold and, and transform and do a work of deliverance in um, us that we might indeed be the, uh, a people who would worship you and enjoy you. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In Matthew chapter 13, you know the story of the, of the, the parable of the wheat and tares. Quickly give you a survey of it. Um, there's a landowner has some a large pro- uh, property. He sows wheat in his field with his servants, only to know, only um, unbeknownst uh, to him, a couple days uh, later, um, an enemy 
sowed a form of seed known as the Darnell Weed Seed, which was a tear. And in that day, that Darnell Weed, even in our day, as it grows, looks almost identical to a wheat plant. And so you wouldn't know if someone sabotaged your fields um, by doing that um, until, of course, it began uh, producing fruit. And so this would be well into the, the season. And sure enough, this parable is told that the, um, his servants um, who were in charge of the field noticed when they started blossoming and blooming that indeed most of this field is filled with tares. And so they went to their, to their um, uh, boss, the, to the owner, and they said, should we, should we root them up? And, and that was uh, something, you know, weed them out. That's something that they did. They typically hired young children with small hands to weed um, on light infestations. But in this particular case, of course, it was dense. And so we read from Matthew chapter 13, the owner saying, no, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, in essence, he, he says, no, we're going to let them grow together. And at the time of the harvest, we're going to separate them and burn them. And from this passage, in many passages like it, we derive a, a theology of God's judgment when it comes to the non-believer. Um, for, for example, Matthew 13, in keeping with what we just read, the end of the, uh, speaking of the end of the, of the wicked, Christ said, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of, of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then... When Christ re returns, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And again, it's spoken about in Revelation chapter 20. And it says where if, if any man's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the doctrine of the last judgment for non-believers. For non we anticipate a day, as evidenced by this parable, when God is going to have everyone stand before him, his white throne judgment, and the non-believer will be declared not guilty and cast into the lake of fire. Now, that truth is what is being um, foreshadowed in our passage uh, today. Esther chapter 7, as we've seen from chapter 6 on, that um, um, Mordecai is a type of uh, Christ. He's also a type of believer. And Haman, of course, is a type, a picture of, of Satan, what he does. He's the adversary of, of God's uh, people. And, and certainly here, he was the adversary of Mordecai. And so we come to chapter 7 where we, where we read about how God deals with, a final blow against the threat that was against his people. Okay? And that blow is against Haman. And yet, this passage contains a twist 
from what we just read, in addition to what we just read about the final judgment, which we'll get to by, at the very end. However, what you need to realize and see as we are going, going into this book is that this book was written, quick review, to a group of people who felt abandoned by God. And the reason they felt abandoned by God is because God, well, they were at a point in redemptive history where really miracles were not taking place like in the previous years, where redemptively God was not doing a whole lot like he had been doing in, in, in previous years, like he would do in four, 400 years with Christ. And so God's people were at this lull time, and then you add uh, to that, they were also compromised. And being a compromised people as they were, they put one and one together and they falsely concluded the reason why they felt abandoned by God, the reason why life was so difficult for them was because of them, what they've done. God was getting even with them. They were now devout. They learned from the exile that man, oh man, you don't turn your back upon God because bad things happen. So they were worshiping him. They were doing all of the religious things they were supposed to do. But in their heart of hearts, they felt separate from God, abandoned by God. And so God gave them a book in which his name is conspicuously absent. As you know, his name's not uh, referenced here. It sort of demonstrates the way they were feeling. God was far removed from their life. However, as we've seen, this book is filled with God. This book is all about God. He's the hero, not Esther, not Mordecai. God is. He single-handedly began the, the uh, deliverance of his people. We saw that two weeks ago in Esther chapter 6, 1 through 3. Now, the key to this book, to God's people, um, as being lived out by Mordecai and Esther was that was chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, where we saw the change in these people and in their life. Before this, they were basically going along with life in their own strength, doing what they believed to be right, doing what they believed would be pleasing unto God or whatever. But it wasn't until Mordecai was brought to the end of himself through pain that he came to see God, his character, his person, more fully, and his promises. Do you remember that? This was a huge moment in Mordecai's life, which then became a huge moment as it spread to Esther and as it spread throughout Judaism. And the point you have to see, brothers and sisters, is that growth in grace, the overriding theme of Esther, growth in grace occurs as you and I, not as we do more religious things, or rely upon the, 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 the work of our hands and praying and sacrificing, growth in grace occurs as you and I come to a greater understanding of who God is and what He's doing. And that is why this whole book is a glimpse at different facets of God's character and what He does. So God is giving His people truths upon which to hang their faith upon, you believe you're saved by faith, right? You're justified by faith. And that makes sense to us because we're trusting Jesus alone for salvation here. However, we struggle to articulate what does it mean to be sanctified by faith? You just saw it. Just as you were saved by believing a proposition about what God has done, who Jesus is, what he's done, this whole set, you're sanctified exactly the same way by believing truths propositions about who God is 
and what he's done. And the more you come to understand that and believe that, the more you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so this book was given to us as this beautiful um, testament of who God is. This is the God. You See, we think he's abandoned us. That's not God. We think he's far off. That's not God. He's intimately involved. We think God got sick of us. That's not God. Look at this book. And so this morning, we're going to look at another facet of God and his promises. And that promise revolves around the last uh, day, the end of this world, specifically the doctrine of God's judgment. And here, verse um, uh, chapter 7, as it relates to the non-Christian. Uh, so we're looking at the end of God's providence. This is what God is working Everything in this world is working towards this end. And in the life of the non-believer, it'll be judgment. Notice with me the revealing of Haman's wickedness. We'll, begin, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. Now that's a fascinating verse because that is not why they got together. Why, why are they gathered there at this moment? Why are they there? They're there for the banquet. They're not there to drink wine. They're there for the banquet, right? So, but what this is doing is it's fast-forwarding us to the point following the uh, ban a banquet, just like the previous day, following the banquet where they then withdrew from the table, sat on those couches, and began sipping wine. And brothers and sisters, you've got to see this is another uh, tool of Hebrew. We have seen that, that this book is written fast, it covers a lot of territory, but then slows down, another uh, tool, literary tool, slows down in chapter 6, 1 through 3, to the point where we're in slow motion, right? So between chapter 1 and 2 is four years. In chapter, what was it, Ch uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 7, seven years later. So we're zipping through history. And then it slows down to chapter 6, where we're basically standing still. And then in chapter uh, 7, once again, we're, we, are, we are impelling forward quickly. And, the, and the, the sense of this, for you and I reading this, as we read about the death of the wicked, is that, brothers and sisters, it's coming swiftly. It's coming quickly. You're feeling, you're feeling what the wicked are going to feel on the last day. It'll be sudden. Think of First Thessalonians chapter 5. In the end, they'll say, peace, safety. But then destruction will come upon them. How? Suddenly. And that's how this, this whole chapter goes. Right? Yesterday, Haman um, woke up on cloud nine. Right? Went to this incredible banquet. Came home, got a little disturbed by Mordecai. Stayed up all night building this big, this mammoth thing to kill Mordecai. And today, this morning, he woke up to go on cloud nine. He's still in charge of everything. He went to go get the king's obvious permission. It's not going to be but a small little, small thing to get the king to say, sure, kill this one person. Um, and he's going to get him to be killed. So he wakes up on top of the world. But by day's end, he's executed. Suddenly. He's in charge of everything. This is the non-believer. Life is great. Peace, safety, and suddenly gone. That fast. You're feeling it the way that this book reads. Okay, we're not at the banquet. We're fast forward uh, through that. He's now, they're now sipping wine. Notice with me verse 2. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, 
emphasizing something else, which I'll reference, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your a request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. It's emphasizing the second banquet. So we know now, this is the third time that the king has said these exact words. And that is, what do you want? It'll be granted to you up to half of the kingdom. We saw last week, I referenced last week, that Esther has orchestrated all of this. Okay, so Esther is, Esther's, Esther's um, character, her personality, unredeemed, or so to speak, living in the uh, flesh, was one where she was manipulative, and she was able to get things done. Just like Paul, before he was saved, he used that great brain of his uh, to kill Christians, right? To, to master God's word, but redeemed, what did God do? He wrote 13 epistles and much more, right? Likewise, um, Esther, prior to this, Esther was uh, used this to, to marry an uncircumcised Philistine, to um, you know, think of all the things that she did. But now God's using this, she's using it, to the preservation of herself. And so, as I, I referenced last time from Deguid's words, yet if the king came to her second feast, he was implicitly agreeing in advance to grant her wish and fulfill her request, whatever it, it was. If he tried to back out at that point, there would have been three public strikes against him. He would lose a great deal of face if he went back on such a public and repeated promise. So, she has him right where he needs uh, to be. And that is, whatever she asks at this banquet, he has to say yes to. Because if he doesn't, be a black eye. Okay? So, it stresses it. Second day also. This is the second banquet. Third time stating this. Whatever she says, he has to say yes to. And that brings us then to verses 3 through 4. And what she says, her request. Notice, the queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me as my uh, petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. All right, what Esther said here, you have to realize, was, was staged, deliberate, and planned. She had plenty of time to, to uh, come up with the, the exact words that she was going to say. So let's walk our way through this facet by facet of her request. Notice the first facet, okay? Verse 3. If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the, the king, very formal, Right where she should be. Haman lost this uh, finality just a couple verses uh, before. But she is acting, she is being a very submissive, unlike Vashti, a very uh, submissive, um, wonderful wife. Okay, and this is her first one, her first uh, statement. Let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. Now think about that. Stare at those words. You realize she went from a gay moment, a happy event, to DEFCON 5, that fast. And notice the order. It's, this is masterful. She doesn't say, you know what? I'm Jewish and my people are threatened. She says, my life is threatened. What does that mean? Well, if you're the queen and your life is threatened, then that means the king's household is threatened. 
And if the king's household is is, uh, threatened, then that means that this is a direct attack against Ahasuerus. So she's brilliant in how she's uh, saying this. The issue here is, I'm going to be killed. And my people. And and, And because of that second part, she now has it where if they fulfill the command or the decree that was passed about Haman killing all of the Jews, wiping them out, that will be a direct attack against the king. Do you see that little phrase? So she's taking a huge risk. The king's listening. He could, he could reject all of this. But this is her approach. My life's up for grabs and the life of my uh, people. At that point, are you really listening about the life of your people? As king, you're thinking, I've been attacked. I, my household is being attacked. So this is much bigger than just Esther. This is the pride of Persia. This is an attack against Persia. Notice her second one. It gets, it gets even more now. Verse 4a. We have been sold, I and my people. Brothers and sisters, she was sold. And you know who sold her? Her and her people? Ahasuerus. Okay, if you look back to chapter 3, verse 9, it was, it was Haman paying, but it was Ahasuerus selling. So this is a true statement. Okay, they were sold. But she doesn't dare say, by you, my, my husband. She just leaves it out there dangling with the implication that whoever is betraying her is the one who sold her. So this makes it much more devious, much more despicable. You mean to tell me someone for money is going to try to assassinate my queen? That's just crazy. That would, that would anger any king, much less this man who's given to to anger. So, so this, this, is, this is big words here. Then notice with me verse, uh, the third uh, facet, 4b. She says, we have been sold, I and my, my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be uh, humiliated. Um, I'm sorry, annihilated. That is a direct quote of chapter 3, verse 13, that Haman wrote. So that's the, an, an exact Hebrew quote of what Haman wrote in the decree that was sent out saying that the Jews are going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now, the king would not have understood that. This king, Hazarus, is far removed from daily life. We've seen that. He's not plugged into the daily man. He does his own thing, oblivious. I mean, Haman comes. He's oblivious to the uh, structure that Haman's built. He's oblivious to the struggle between Haman and Mordecai. He's oblivious to it all. So he would not have known, he would not have recognized those words, but Haman would have. And at this moment, Haman wouldn't necessarily be frightened, but he would know at that moment she's, attack, she's talking about him. So now the big question is, what's this king going to, re- how's this king going to respond to Esther? He can't say a word because this is a conversation between the king and the queen. Protocol says you speak when you're spoken to in the presence of the king. So he can't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. He cannot uh, participate. He can only sit back and watch. At this point, he just heard three words or a a phrase containing three key words that he himself penned. Okay, so it's it's getting serious here. And then she ends with this incredible 
cherry on the top of the ice cream, okay, or the Sunday. Notice the end of verse 4. If it had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the, the king. What was Vashti's problem, his first wife? Vashti's problem was is that basically this king was as much about her as it was him. So she did not do what the king wanted. She did what she wanted. Okay, and so they deposed her and got a queen with one, well, actually two qualifications. One, she had to be gorgeous, and two, she had to please the king. Esther knows this, and thus throughout this entire time relating to this man, she does exactly that. She, in essence here, says this, listen, if it meant my inconvenience, if it meant my hurt, I would do anything for you, king, anything. You're an amazing king. You're an amazing husband. But we're talking about my death and the death of my people. That's the only reason I'm, I'm troubling you. I don't want you to be troubled. You are this wonderful being. So, so basically, she's complimenting him and she is um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, feeding him right where he wants, or scratching him right where he, he wants to be itched. Right? And that was at the point where you exist for me. So she does that. She, she hits every box. Now at this point, when she finishes this, all eyes go to the king. Haman, Esther, no doubt servants and royal guard. All eyes are on uh, the king. He could go, oh, come on, Esther, what are you talking about? He could have done that. He said, he could have gone, what, you know, um, what's he going to do? So at this point, verse 4 to 5, it's a pregnant moment, a pregnant pause. Okay, verse 5. The king, Ahasuerus, asked, this is it, are you crazy? You know, have you been nipping too much off of that, that drink? Esther, what's your problem? He doesn't. Why? Because Esther had played it perfectly. Notice, he asked, uh, Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? And who would presume to do, um, to do thus? Who, where, and what madman would do this? So he's bought it. Whatever she uh, presented, she, she presented so perfectly that uh, for him what she just said is gospel truth. It, it's, it's true truth. This is reality. So he's, he's angry. He's beside himself. Gone are all the... The uh, protocol of the uh, um, royal, you know, up to half of the kingdom. Who is he? Where is he? And is he nuts? At that moment, Esther, you got to see it. She didn't scream. I, I can't imagine this is, I'm interpreting this, guys. She didn't scream. She was just as calm and cool as she was in, in, in arranging all of this. We read, and Esther said, looking at her husband, a foe, an enemy, and then you can imagine her just turning her head slightly, is the wicked Haman. Can you imagine that? No screaming, no squelch, just a foe, an enemy, is this wicked Haman. At that moment, well, we read, Haman knew it was over. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. Wow. So this is a... a a massive climax, okay, that has come to pass because God used Esther in such an amazing way in this man's life.
Now, that brings us then to verse 7 and 8, a cry of desperation. And what we're reading 7 is shocking, okay? Notice verse 7. We would expect at that moment, because the previous words, is this guy nuts? Who is this person? What's their name and where are they? You'd expect the moment she said Haman, he would pull out his sword and hack them to, to death if he believed her, which he did. Or if that wasn't dignified, he would have said, royal guard, arrest this man. Kill him on the spot. He doesn't. He does something really odd. Notice with me verse 7. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that that harm had been determined against him by the, the king. So he knows he's in trouble. The king stands up, walks out. Now that is odd. Really odd. Um, some say it's because that's the typical king. He does not, his only advisor, his main advisor, was Haman. And Haman is now uh, the bad guy. He doesn't know what to do. So he leaves. That's one interpretation. I'm favoring the other one. A bunch of other commentaries saying, no, that's not it at all. Ahasuerus is in a pickle. A massive pickle. Because the moment that that decree was passed, whose decree was it? It wasn't Haman's. Even though Haman may have wrote the script, the moment that that proclamation was passed and sent out to the kingdom about the death of the Jews, that was, that was Hazarerus' proclamation. And he, knew, and he knows it. That's his command. He's the one who sold the Jews. He's the one who signed the legislation. Or He did it all. So he's in a massive pickle. Haman must die, but he can't kill Haman. If he does anything uh, to Haman, it's going to look horrible against him. He's in this horrible pickle. Um, Deguid, I think, explains it very well. Why did the king need to walk at this point? need to take a walk at this point. Not because he needed time to think or because he wanted to cool down. Haman at least was in no doubt what the king's verdict would be when he uh, returned. Clearly from the text, verse 7. He's dead. He knows that. Already as the king went out, Haman could see that Ahasuerus had determined to do him harm. Nor did that prospect particularly trouble the king. He was unlikely to lose any sleep over Haman's fate. What was troubling the king was more likely the issue of his own reputation. He had authorized Haman's edict. His royal seal had ratified it. So how could he now, without losing face, punish Haman for promulgating a decree that he had approved personally? That was his tricky dilemma. Now, Haman, unfortunately, doesn't think very quickly. He's an intelligent man and a capable man, clearly. But he wasn't one who who thought quickly on his feet like Esther. So rather, what he should have done is he should have followed the king out into the garden. That would have been the best thing he could have done. And then, as a man, say, boy, we got ourselves a pickle, don't we? King, if you'll let me talk to you, right? What are we going to do here? Okay? He didn't. Instead, notice what we read. Um... Verse 7 again, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine, went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed, stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Why did he stay? Because he believed at this moment Esther was the power at this moment. 